coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. In the midst of all the despair and all of the issues, it was the artist who came in and helped us process what happened and what was happening. If you don't have that, you just spike in time. It, it really adds a whole nother dimension. When the artist came in the midst of the violence, we supported them. Why can't we support them when it's not a crisis? There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Really just, uh, thank you for bringing us together uh, with Laura and my buddy Odell. We just uh, lift up the uh, holiday coming, Thanksgiving, and we have so much to be thankful for that uh, you've provided over the year. And uh, Lord, we just uh, ask for safe travels for all the folks that are traveling and our families. And uh, and more importantly, thank you for being our Savior. Amen. Father God, we come to you just saying thank you for opportunity. As you know, we are going into the holiday season. We're going into Thanksgiving. And God, help prepare many of us that when we sit at the dinner table, We're thankful to sit with family and friends, but some of the tables, some of the chairs are going to be empty. So God, prepare us as some of these chairs are empty to understand everything that's going on as we go forth. In Jesus' name, we pray and believe. Amen. Well, Odell, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. You know, it's interesting. This morning, I had to go over to the DMV to get the car registered and all this kind of stuff. My son comes from California, as you know, now in New York. Let me tell you something, Bill. It's nothing like starting your day off at the DMV. And you know you know that song, YMCA? The DMV need to have their own song. I'm not saying that it's negative or positive. I'm just saying the DMV, standing in line, hoping and praying that you have all the paperwork right and everything's done right, is a challenge within itself. A lot of anxiety when you're waiting in line because you're going, I don't do this every day. I don't know if I've got everything. There's a good chance I don't, but I'm going to go up and the lady's going to be very nice to me and say, I can't do it because you're missing this, this, and this. And then you have to go back home and try and find it and then start all over again. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And I'm sitting in line just looking, right? It's like, okay. All right. I hope that she doesn't turn me away. I hope this because the DMV is not my favorite place. I don't get anxiety over it, but I don't I'm not a big fan of going into DMV because it's almost like, I don't know. It's just interesting to me. But, you know, if you think about it, 
automobiles and the whole new conversation going now about the mega site, about Toyota maybe coming into the community, uh, a battery site down in the uh, the mega site. What do you think about that? Man, that's that's going to be a big deal. That's a big deal for us and because that's only about 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes from downtown Greensboro. So um, it's going to bring a lot of jobs in, like 1,750 jobs to start out. And electric, electric cars are the way of the future. You know, Dory has a Tesla. And uh, once in a while, I get to drive it. Uh, but usually, I get to look at it. I've never had to put gas in it, though. That's the only thing I can say about that. And uh, the other thing is, we still have to get it inspected. Even though it's a gas, it's an electric car, you think, what are they inspecting? Well, they're inspecting the safety stuff. Plus, they want their $35. Yeah, exactly. That's probably $35. <laughs> but, you know, Dory gave me a ride in a Tesla once. And for someone who never were in an EV, electrical vehicle, it's almost like you taking your computer and the volume, you just take the volume and with the mouse and just keep it going. That's how that Tesla just took off. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was glad to get out of that car. <laughs> Nothing against doors driving. And then you all have the, I call it the bat wing doors where the doors pop open and all that kind of good stuff. But yep. think about this though, Bill. When you think about a huge site and huge success and hats off to the Jim Melvins and the city fathers, whoever they, and, and city fathers and mothers, whoever they may be who helped put this deal together. So let me give kudos because we always talk negative sometimes about what government does and doesn't do. So I just say, great job, economic development team, everybody who has something to do with it because that's going to be a big deal. However, when you bring something that huge in here with that kind of skill set, you're going to bring people in from all over the world with different cultures and different experiences. So they're going to be coming here and they're going to be looking at art and they're going to be bringing in all these different things and they're going to be looking at us from such a different perspective. And our guest today, Bill, and I know you can introduce her or she introduce herself. She's just fabulous. This is what she's all about. And we're going to be talking about, you know, the inclusive art community and those who are overlooked and how some people get money and others don't get money and the differences, all these good things. So that's what people come to the city and they're going to see. They want to, you know, we have the Tanger Center. Thank God for Kathy Manning and that whole crew bringing that together. But also, Bill, they, people want to see diversity, inclusion and arts is a great attraction to people. Yes. Art, art uh, and culture are the lifeblood of a city and a community. If you don't have that, you're just biding time. It, it really adds a whole nother dimension. And we're lucky to have Laura Way in our community because she's passionate about the arts. She's passionate about Greensboro. And she's just a straight out passionate person. So let us introduce her right now, because uh, it's important that uh, we hear from her and hear about what's happening in our community with fine arts today and tomorrow with the future. Laura, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, thank you. Why don't you give us a little your, your background? You know, how you got the Greensboro, how long you've been here, education, all that stuff. Well, I am. I was born in Philadelphia, so no matter where I live, I'm always uh, from the city of brotherly love. I grew up in upstate New York, um, so I'm, I talk fast and I move fast. I've got that thing going <laughs> that Northerners like to have. I uh, had my MBA in accounting and a degree in economics. I was not in the arts at all. Matter of fact, I, if I look back and think about my report cards, 
Um, I know I failed home ec, but I don't <laughs> think I did much better <laughs> in in arts either. So, so it's a, a little strange that I'm in the arts these days. So cooking isn't your thing, but doing the books is. Yes. Well, it wasn't really the cooking that I minded so much. It was learning how to sew, you know, oh. mend a, a, you know, sew on a button or mend a, 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 a hole in someone's clothing. It just felt, um, it wasn't my shtick. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I hear you. I, yeah. I took, uh, uh, when I was working on my MBA, I took it in finance at Roosevelt University at night because I was working during the day. And uh, we would have, you know, obviously when you're working at night class, you've got all business people. And uh, we were taking our economic class and it was macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. And the professor sat up there and he outlined what he was going to teach us. And we got the books and he started outlining it. And we we took a break. Uh, I think class was from six to nine and halfway through, you took about a 20 minute break. And so we're sitting around having coffee and everybody's saying, there's about 15 of us in the class. And they all were saying, Hey, you know what he outlined? That's not what I want to learn. I want to learn, you know, when the economy, when interest rates go up, what happens? When interest rates go down, what happens? When the GMP changes, you know, all these kind of macro things that I listen to in business as opposed to all this theoretical stuff. So uh, we go back into the class and uh, one of the students said, uh, Professor, uh, we've got an issue with the class outline. Like to discuss it with you. I'm thinking, holy cow, this this doesn't sound like it's going anywhere good. And, and Bill Goble would like to explain it to you. <laughs> he threw me right under. So I very diplomatically said, "Look, we we're all business people, been around for a while. We here's here's kind of the things we want." And he said, "His end end of the desk." And he said, "I'll tell you what. Let's just take the rest of the class and outline what you folks want to learn." And everybody had about five or six things, and he made a whole list. And he said. I will teach this. I've got good news and bad news. I'll teach it. The bad news is the books you got, throw them away because mm. this stuff is going to help you. Uh, so he taught us and we were so engaged. All of us got ace because we were really motivated. Well, the professor's name was Milton Freeman. Wow. He taught night classes because he wanted to be with business people. And he he asked us probably more questions than we asked him. Like I was working for Avon Products then, and he wanted to know what was going on Avon Products. How are they doing their distribution? How are they doing their main? I mean, he was into all these questions. So anyhow, I digress. We want to get back to the fine arts. <laughs> no, no, that's all good. But Bill, I think, I think to your point, though, practical, and one of the things that I want to ask Laura, um, to the audience who can't see me, I'm on Zoom, but this is Odell, the good-looking black guy, as you all know. But Laura, the thing is this. In the middle of the summer with Black Lives Matter, peaceful, peaceful protesting, looting, a little bit of everything that happened, when it all calmed down, it was the artist. It was the artist who came and painted and displayed on the plywood boards that covered the broken windows. It was mm -hmm. the artist when we did the Black Lives Matter on the street, the artist when Bill and Rabbi Ben-Gideon walked down through the streets the, the day after Greensboro, and they thought about me, how's Odell doing? And they came over to Mount Zion. It was the artists who came in and calmed everything. I mean, why, why it's so important that the artists be a part of community. It's common unity. We all in this together. So yeah. yes, I know fine art, 
But I love what happened in the midst of all the despair and all of the issues. It was the artist who came in and helped us process what happened and what was happening. You know, I, I think that um, I have a bias towards artists. Um, I think artists can change the world. I, I really do believe this. I believe that artists who, who work on their craft and their creative pro- uh, practice, and it it's, it's a, takes a real discipline. But when you're in an artist studio or in an artist's head, there's a lot of chaos going on. They have a lot of competing thoughts all the time. And they're very comfortable with ambiguity. And I think what, what really helped artists lean in the way they did is they understood that through the chaos, something good could emerge. And that was the plywood that was going up that the building owners or the, the, the folks who own those shops, you know, put up those boards. And artists saw this as a way to show that this isn't just chaos. This could be healing. And they did it. Um, there were a few uh, shop owners who, you know, reached out to their friends who were artists and said, you know, help help me make this more beautiful so it feels less uh, fragile. You know, so downtown felt less fragile and and splintered. Um, but then artists just came from everywhere, and they weren't even all from Greensboro. They just came and, and started walking up and down the street with paint and and spray cans of paint. And then little kids came and families came. And from that chaos and that angst that we were feeling that weekend, um, something beautiful happened. And it was this sense that together we can heal. Together together we can have some really, really hard conversations. And, And that was really the most important thing that all of a sudden you started to have a conversation that you, particularly in the South, where we tend to want to be polite, um, we were saying and talking about things that, you know, we had two, you know, divergent points of view of what happened, and we had to find a common ground. And um, (laughs) aptly put, I guess. (laughs) Um, And it happened, and it worked. Um, And now, you know, at the History Museum, those, those, that plywood and those stories, they've been captured, as, and now they're part of our collective history, and we can't let that go. I remember walking down there and seeing the, the energy and the positiveness of people in the midst of, at the same time, cleaning up glass, mm-hmm. you know, that was broken windows. Right. So I, w- I went down that, you know, we got the phone call on uh, Saturday night and then again, something, something happened on Sunday night it was Memorial Day weekend. And it was amazing. Um, you know, as many people know, I date Andy Zimmerman in his building. I forget how many windows. It was a lot of windows, 40, 50 windows that had been broken. And people just showed up with brooms and dustpans. It, to help anyone and everyone who needed um, help. And um, it, it just really spoke to us as a community. It, it's been, it, Greensboro can feel divided and is divided in many ways, but it was an opportunity for us to say, we can rise above this. And anyone from every walk of life came and pitched in. You know, I was looking at your website and I was looking at your officers and your board members. There's about six people in there that I know 
through Boy Scouts, quite frankly. Uh, really? Yeah. Some way the connection came and they were either involved in our, in our board at one time or, or scouts and uh, bumped into them. So it, it's amazing the community that you put together with this board of directors and your officers. Uh, it's, it's, it's very broad. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, mm-hmm. we've got, we had Marty Kodas on a little while ago and he does his street art. Yes. Uh, where do you see that going and, uh, how do you see that affecting the community? Well, uh, street art and Marty does a really great job. And then there's another arts administrator here in Greensboro, Philip Marsh, who works, um, he's primarily working on the South end, end of Elm street. And he, he's done a lot of work for Andy Zimmerman and South end brewery and a lot of other, uh, the, the city of Greensboro. So these are two anchors to this street art um, and, and murals that are happening here in Greensboro. And what I, I, what I think about street art, and a lot of people complain to me about it. Um, you, know, why does, you know, why does Marty have to have paint every single building he owns? Or why does, the, <laughs> why does every underpass have to have paint? And I'm like, it's only paint. You know, first of all, just take a deep breath. It's only paint. <laughs> And uh-huh. second, it's the most democratic art form there is. You don't have to get out of your car. You don't have to say, oh, I can't go into that space because I don't belong. Or I feel like I'm not educated enough to, to, to understand what's happening in that space. So I'm going to not be involved in that. I'm not going to engage. It's totally democratic. And you can spend as much or as little amount of time as you want. You can look at it at a stop at a stoplight and keep on going, or you can stop and get out of your car and walk around and say, gosh, this is really interesting. I wonder what the artist is trying to say. And sometimes it doesn't really matter what the artist was trying to say. It only matters what it is you're feeling when you're seeing it. Yes. You know what I what I enjoy about it is I don't always get to go into a gallery. Right. Okay. I'm busy. And it's it, it, the but when I'm driving, I drive a lot. When I see it. I enjoy it. I might be stopped mm-hmm. at a red light or I might be going by it. I, I love the fact that uh, people are using color to make our, our city and our community a vibrant community right. and uh, creativity and all that that goes with it. It's, it's, I don't know where it's going to end up, but it's a beautiful thing. It, it is. It does demonstrate that there's this underlying um, thread of creativity in Greensboro that is sort of needs to find places to express, be expressed. And right now it's uh, on the side of a building and it's not tags. I mean, it's artists are being paid for that work and it's very intentional. Yes. What is happening there? I w- uh, I'm going to share just a, I'm going to take a little twist here. Well, Dell and I uh, did a riverboat cruise from Paris to Normandy with our wives and it was a delightful time. And we stopped in a small town and they had a big, uh, all these towns have churches, these big old cathedrals. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, you need to come back here at night and see the laser show. So we came back and there must have been, how many, did you go one night, Odell? Did yes. You, yes. How many people do you think were there? It was, well, you know, yes, exactly. That was before COVID, pre-COVID. So yes, you're right. It was just amazing. It was probably about four or 500 people every night. They do it on the weekends primarily, but they took this cathedral and they did a story with laser lights of the history of the region going back to midi uh, to uh, uh, when the cavemen were there 
and went through the uh, the Crusades and went through World War One and World War Two, and it was all on a building. And uh, they actually started. They had is one of the things they started out was uh, creation with Adam and Eve, and they had this snake that came out of the one of the parts of the building and went into another part of the building and came back. And I'm like, how in the world did they do that? You know, those are the kind of things that I would love to see Greensboro get a guy. If we could get, uh, I know there's a lot of personalities here. So, uh, but we get Andy and Roy and uh, Marty to do something like that for the community and put it on one of the buildings. I don't know what building we put it on. Roy Carroll probably wanted on his. But, uh, <laughs> well, it, it's funny because, um, this is why we need a, um, um, one of the things our screens for is working on is a robust marketing strategy for the arts community, because there's too many things you don't know that are happening that you don't know. But, uh, last week or two weeks ago, there was a, um, a light show on elsewhere down on South Elm doing exactly what you're talking about. It was a group that um, the public art endowment had originally brought to Greensboro in, I think it was 2017, may have been 2016. And they did a light show uh, all over Greensboro. Uh, and on the, they projected on the Bennett Tower, Water Tower. And it was really phenomenal. And they came back and they, d- they did this light show on uh, the facade of Elsewhere down on South Elm Street. And um, it was open to the public. Anyone could have got, uh, been out and about and, and stand there and see something really wonderful. But um, unfortunately, we don't do a good enough job, you know, telling our own story and bragging about what's hap- going to happen and how you can participate. So we'll work on that. Yeah. Because that- it's a shame that you, here you are saying, wouldn't it be nice to have it? And it was two weeks ago we had it. Yeah. And that's you know, that's us. That's on us for not really communicating as broadly and in a, a, a inclusive, robust way. Well, I, what's happening. you know, don't beat yourself up too much. COVID had something to do with this. So, uh, you know, we, you know, it shut down a lot of things that were going on downtown. So people got out of the habit of looking just because, right. you know, they, they knew it was not someplace they're going to, with Tanger opening now and people looking downtown for more and more things, um, but yeah, that would be a good thing to do. Odell? And you know, now that you've said it too, you know Matt Brown, he'll never turn down a good idea. <laughs> I can imagine um, Matt, Matt's going to listen to this and say, you know, I could do that on Tanger every show night. That's, you know, that's, I was thinking the same thing. And, uh, you know, it's a shame the Coliseum isn't downtown because that's a big enough uh, canvas that you could do a phenomenal thing with. But, uh, you, you know, we want to keep people coming downtown as opposed right. to there. Right. Um, well, the news and record site, who, whatever happens with that site when it is developed, they should plan for that from, from the design phase on a light show downtown on the, whatever news and record becomes. You know, Bill, um, I had the pleasure of having lunch. No, it was coffee with coffee. Um, Laura early one morning at the Green Bean. For people who don't know, and I asked Laura to describe the Green Bean, for a Black Baptist preacher sitting out front of the Green Bean, that's the community. I loved it. I loved it. I always, such energy there, such creative energy at the Green Bean. I believe that the Green Bean downtown is one of our treasures in the city of Greensboro. When you start talking about diversity, inclusion, 
just everything and not from a perspective of negative connotations, but so much positive energy. And Laura, thank you for meeting me because when you started talking about, I serve on the Greensboro Board of Directors for the Opera. And we're talking about bringing Porgy and Bess to Greensboro. You know, you start thinking about that. A lot of that stuff is not starving artists per se, but without our artists in this city, I think we would be losing something. Yes. Well, and as I say, and maybe organizations don't like it as much, but what's the point of having an organization if you don't have artists? I mean, there is no organization. There is no opera if there aren't artists. There's no symphony if you don't have artists. And uh, in Greensboro, we just need to make sure that that starving artist is a, a smaller subset of our creative class than it currently is. I mean, artists work really hard. And uh, in Greensboro, it's been difficult to make a good living if you're in the gig economy. So if you're an individual musician and you're, you're playing gigs or even if you play, you're a musician and you may play for the symphony or may play at an opera or bel canto, you have to have a steady stream of income and gigs to make a good living. In Greensboro, I when I was making my pitch for the new creative investment, which is an ARPA ask to help infuse the creative economy, um, I used data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the average wage we were able to calculate for people working in the gig economy is $11.47. Holy cow. That is not a living wage. Um, Now, gig economy gives you freedom to pick and choose, but there's no safety net for you. And at $11.27, you're working multiple jobs to, to make a living. And then it are, is your community as creative as it needs to be because you're an artist who's really incredibly talented, but then you're, you're working two other jobs. You're working at the green bean. Thank goodness we have the green bean or you're working at Starbucks or at, you know, Dick's sporting goods. And um, somewhere along the way, that creativity that you're so invested in begins to dissipate. And I want to reverse that trend. Tell us, tell us more about the ARPA ask. Tell us more about that. You mentioned that. Bill, are you familiar with that? Because I'm not totally familiar with it. Oh, it's first I heard of it. So, so the American Rescue uh, Plan Act of 2021 um, was approved and you know, signed by the president. I think it was March 13th. Um, but I, I sort of knew that it, when Joe Biden was... Um, you know, he was sworn in as president that there was going to be an additional rescue act put out there. I mean, he, he didn't, it wasn't a secret. So I started working in January with a colleague, Steve Collier, who is with Greensboro Literary Festival, Greensboro Bound. We started doing um, some, some research. Uh, we, we read a lot of research papers on the value of the creative economy, how it drives uh, community outcomes from growth in GDP, to community cohesion, educational outcomes, health outcomes. So we started making this broad case around supporting the creative economy in Guilford County. And how much money would that take? So after three months, well, that probably took us four months, talking to experts all over the country, um, bringing together people in the triad region and talking about sort of what are you doing in Winston-Salem? What are you doing in Raleigh? What are you doing in, in Chapel Hill around the creative economy and jumpstarting 
um, the arts again, we, um, we decided to ask the county and the city for $2.5 million each from the ARP money when it, it, when it was finally allocated to the county and the city. So then the county received $104 million, the city of Greensboro received 54, and the city of High Point has received 22 million. And each of those entities is developing their own system to allocate money to different um, areas within the broader economy to help jumpstart and, and have recovery from this pandemic. And so we made the case that this is an economic argument. Just like you said uh, about the arts drive the economy. And that's the case we made is we need to invest in artists and arts organizations so that we have a stronger, uh, more robust creative economy, which drives tourism. It drives small business development. It drives entrepreneurship. It drives attraction and retention of those large employers that we were started this with. They want to come to a city where there's something to do that's interesting, that their schools have opportunities to have arts experiences, that, that there is diversity and inclusion, an inclusive arts community that speaks to everyone who is not necessarily from Greensboro, who is coming, like you said at the beginning, with different perspectives and different cultures and different histories. And the arts can help blend all that at the same time grow our GDP, um, ex expand the ability of our GDP growth in, in Guilford County. Um, we can't keep doing the same thing. It, it's not working. So let's try something new. And for, for my perspective, that's it, making a major investment in the creative economy, not a building. I mean, I love Tanger. That's a building. I'm talking about investing in the people, the artists and the organizations that are local, homegrown, authentically Guilford County. Well, you know, it's interesting. We have the building. You know, they've done a great job on the building. I love your fire. That's one of the things that I admire about you. And you don't pull punches. You, If, if it comes up, it, it just it comes up. But you mentioned the number. Uh, Guilford County got X amount. What was that number again? Guilford County got on? 104 million. Okay. And High Point had what? 22. Okay, and Greensboro had what? 54. Okay, now I went to school in South Carolina in the 60s, so I'm going to do the dot, 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 Jeffro. So I see zero, carry one, that's seven, that's eight. So you're saying $180 million. Out of $180 million, you asked for $5 million to help support what we know is a quality of life. Yes, we're talking about economic engine, but quality of life, because when the artists came in the midst of the violence, we supported them. Why can't we support them when it's not a crisis? Right. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's it it it's going to grow. You're you're absolutely right, Laura. It's 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 an investment, and in, you get the return on the investment. You know, business people yeah. listen to this show. Return on investment. It's all about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, arts will give you a return on investment. It's it's. They will. It's not a throwaway money. It's a return on investment. Right. Uh, so uh, the uh, I Mike, I have another. I'm going to take another twist here. Okay. Uh, we, you know, we both know Victoria Milstein, and she's working mm -hmm. on a piece of art uh, downtown. We're going to have her on the show. Uh, it's I think Odell mentioned it's uh, she wouldn't take her boots off is the title of it, and it's a picture. She did a, uh, uh, a TED talk on it. 
And uh, at the TED Talk, she talked about this photo. And the photo is of a family of multi-generations of Jewish people just before they were executed in Auschwitz. And uh, they were stripped down to their skivvies. But the oldest woman left her boots on. And they took the German person that took the picture, uh, meant this picture probably for no good, okay, to mm-hmm. show control. And Victoria's turned it into a, a photo that's for the good, to remind us of all those issues that happened in Auschwitz and, uh, and how strong these women were. And each of them have a little person, like the youngest one's kind of hiding behind her mother, and there's a couple other things. And so she's doing a sculpture of that. And it's going to be in downtown Greensboro, I think at Labauer Park. Is that correct? And uh, yes. uh, she's working on it right now. She's raising money for it. I think she's got a pretty significant amount of money saved so uh, raised so far. And uh, do you want to share anything that you know about it? So I, I know a little bit about it. I, I need to know more than I do, except for I know that this is a project that Victoria and her sister and, and Victoria's husband, Ron, and the whole family is involved in, and it it does speak to the power of the arts to not let us forget. Too many people want to forget. And this sculpture, when it is installed into Labauer Park, it, it's a really important space for it to be in. It, it's a park that brings people from all over this community um, regardless of where they live in this community, Labar Park is this opening to the space that is really welcoming to everyone. And to be able to be there with your, your grandparents and your the great grandkids or the nieces and the nephews and talk about how, e- how indispensable having art is because how dispensable life, human life can be sometimes. Yes. And that we ca- we had to be diligent as a community, as a country, as as part of a of the broader humanity to say no, and that's what Victoria is saying to us. We're not going to strip someone down and take away all of their dignity and just walk away. We're going to make a stand and say, "I'm not taking off my boots. I am. I am human." I deserve recognition and respect, just like you do, just like she does, or just like everyone else around us. We're not going to be dehumanized. I think, I did mention, I think that was the name of the project, but just for uh, GP. Okay, good. You know, it's interesting, though, that Laura made me think about something, Bill, when she was speaking. We're in the middle of a reconciliation somewhat with our country. As we're tearing down, taking down Civil War monuments, we're putting up, installing art statues and figures to open the conversation. And it's just interesting. And I think, Laura, you said it, that we have to be careful when we do this, but at the same time, we have to be deliberate so and intentional. So tell me more, tell the audience more about the whole thing on what artist gets overlooked, how certain money goes certain places and don't go other places. And again, this is, I believe in capitalism. I think America is the best best country in the world. So you don't want to tell people what to do with their money. However, you want to help people make good decisions for return on investment with their money. Right. 
So Arts Greensboro is a United Arts Council, and which it was formed to support uh, essentially anchor institutions. And it was 60 years ago. We've been around for 61 years. And at the time, United Arts Councils, Cleveland and Cincinnati, Louisville, Pittsburgh, um, uh, High Point actually is a United Arts Council, where at the time they were formed, there was sort of a, you had to embargo fundraising and the arts councils leaned in and did the fundraising for organizations. And then the the arts council would re-grant that money out to the arts community. But 61 years ago, when you think about it, regardless of what community you you lived in, your primary arts organizations were your symphony, your ballet, um, your opera, um, a a museum. They were your anchor institutions. And I I don't even know if anyone thought about the word multicultural or um, certainly not BIPOC at the time. but. Over those 61 years, art has evolved and changed and our community and our, has evolved and changed and has become more blended. And so it's important for the Arts Council to be reflective of the community at large because it's, it's a public trust. Our, uh, our community is, is trusting us to support organizations and artists who are providing meaningful um, experiences and that they are striving for artistic excellence within their chosen discipline. But the the art, art form and the and the artists, the work that the artists producing, they need they should be responsive to the community at large, so that everything doesn't look the same. And so one of the you know terminology I use is that when we are evaluating organizations or artists around their their artistic merit and many times that's the driving force for fund grant funding. We can't just look at it through the, the prism of what does the white Eurocentric model look like? What are you going to see in, in your muse- your cultural institutions that you would have seen 60 years ago? You had to look at it through the lens of where people are today. And so art has evolved and changed. So the Arts Council needs to evolve and change and keep up with it. And, and in that process, there, we recognize that there are artists and organizations that have received very little funding because we were always trailing behind the, the world of art. If, so funding was not keeping up with the evolving nature of art forms. And now we're trying to recalibrate that so that organizations, um, I, I, you know, I could pick a few like Casa Azul, which is a multicultural organization that celebrates Latin art and culture primarily. And so they, you know, they have never received anything beyond project support grant. Um, the Gantt School of Music and Jazz is a very, uh, a really young emerging organization. Their founder, his intent and the intent of his board is to put quality instruments in the hands of children who would not have an opportunity to purchase a, a, a violin, a trumpet, a saxophone. And he partners with more music and others across the community to provide professional lessons, quality instruments, and giving these children outlets to express themselves through music. 
60 years ago, if these organizations existed, which they didn't, they would have been so far under the radar that the Arts Council would not have supported them. Now they're being, we're, ri- we're raising them up so that they have an opportunity to grow and thrive the same way that the symphony and the ballet and, and EMF and Green Hill, they've had, they have opportunities to do that. We want to give a whole new generation of organizations the opportunity to grow, thrive, and give back to our community. Because that's really what's important is giving back to our community, meeting our community where it's at and allowing our community to feel like the arts, they belong in any art space that it, that we support, they belong there. And if you want, if you have a sense of belonging, that means you have to be, you have to see yourself there and know that you're welcome. And that's really important. That sense of belonging that you're not feeling excluded. Excellent. Well said. You know, if an artist that's listening to our podcast wants to get in touch with you and discuss uh, a project or funding or just just general advice, how would they get in touch with you? First thing I do is send them to our website, artsgreensboro.org. And then um, we have a uh, we have a you know drop down for grants and look look for our grant deadlines for artists. Um, we have a wonderful, wonderful grants manager, Darlene McClinton. She's a public artist. She teaches at A&T. She's, she does three different jobs, plus she works for us. Um, we just closed the artist support grants that are supported through the North Carolina Arts Council. When Darlene started two years ago, we had 37 applications. Uh, we closed this cycle. We had 100 and I think it I think it's 260 applications. And we did that. That increase is because Darlene, and in partnership with the Winston-Salem Arts Council, but I venture to say mostly Darlene, she calls hundreds of artists. She texts them. She emails them and says, hey, don't let this opportunity pass you by. Lean in and you know, make sure your creative practice is as professional as it can be because we want to support you. So you do the work and we will help you. And um, that's a 265, you know, in uh, 2021, uh, 37 in 2018. That's intentionality. That's not just artists are looking for money. That's intentionality on the part of our grants manager at Arts Greensboro to say, you're doing something important. Let's, let's help you for professionalize and get your artwork out there. 180 million. That just still sticks with me. The County, 104 million, um, high point, 22 million Greensboro, 54 million. Now this is not taxpayer. Well, it is taxpayers dollars, but this is coming from the whole ARP. What's the status on that? And how can the community get involved to help our voices be heard that we think some of those dollars Five million of 180 million. I can't do the math. You know, I told you, you know, I went to school in South Carolina. Okay. So from that perspective, five million, it could do so much. How, where, what's the status? Are they telling you yes, no, they're ignoring you? What's the status on it? Well, no one's ignoring us. I think everybody recognizes that arts and culture are a really important part of our community. The city of Greensboro, uh, they actually had, um, applications that were due 
November 5th. I'm trying to remember. It was Friday, November 5th. So I've put together an application and I've presented that to the to the budget manager's office. And then it will be decided by the city council after it goes through the city manager's offices around eligibility. Because it's, you know, ultimately federal money, it has restrictions applied to it. The county's process, they have a very thoughtful process. They're doing a lot of listening and learning and they've hired a consulting firm to help them make sure that they're talking to every sort of subset of the community and hearing what the community wants. I've been to a lot of those listening sessions, standing up and saying, arts and culture are really important. And the really amazing thing is I have not had one person push back on me and say, well, these, need, these needs are more important than this. Everyone recognizes it's an, it is not an either or, it's an and. There's no question we need to address food insecurity, housing insecurity, health insecurity. There is no question that we need broadband across our community, regardless of where you live. There is no question that our schools need to be better, but you can do both and we will be better off. So in terms of the county commissioners, I think, you know, it's just your advocacy. You know, you sit down with the county commissioner and say, hey, I really like this new creative investment in investing in the arts. They'll know what you're talking about because I've talked to them. That's great. How about High Point? High Point, um, I have uh, just, in, with my colleague Debbie Lumpkins at the High Point Arts Council, we, um, they had a listening session two last week. I went to one. And so we've talked about the exact same thing that we're talking to the county and the city of at Greensboro. We're all in this together. There, there's artificial barriers. That great divide between High Point and Greensboro, what is that all about? I don't know. I don't understand. But it, it's a, it, you know, I've said it a lot. It's easier to maintain a silo than it is to have an open field where things can grow and, 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 and bloom. Well, it's time we break down those silos and spend a little time plowing those fields so we can have more fertile ground um, because the silos just aren't working. And so who cares if it comes from High Point or Greensboro or Guilford County? It's, it's well, to, for all of us. It's for all of us. Well, any other time it's a crisis, it's the artist bill who comes in. So let's get the artists out there to paint that invisible wall. Yeah, let's get the artists to paint that invisible wall, just like we asked them to come down and paint the plywood boards, how we asked them to calm all the violence. Bill, is on you, my friend. Well, Laura, we've, we're about out of time here, so you get the last word. We always ask our guests, how do you find common ground? And if there's anything that you want to add that we haven't touched, uh, this is your opportunity. Well, I, how do I find common ground? I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, I talk fast, I walk fast, I think fast. But what I've learned over the last, it, it predates um, the unrest after the murder of George Floyd. It really, it started actually with, um, in Ferguson, when Michael Brown um, was killed, that something had to change. And I didn't understand at the time what it was. I, you know, I felt like I was an empathetic, you know, open person. And I had to sit with my own, my own advantages or privilege, whatever you want to, however you want to describe that. And I realized that I didn't understand enough about people who didn't look like me, 
So I have been, and I had advice from Dina Hayes, I must admit, from the Racial Equity Institute. And um, she said, she, I don't even know if she said it, but this is what I remember. It's listen, sit with it, listen some more, sit with it, then breathe in someone else's reality. Mm. Wow. And if, if you, before you talk, before you do anything, breathe in. And then when you're doing something with, if, if when you're putting out a program or you're you know, a grant program or a community project, remember you're not doing it for them or to them. You're doing it with them. And that's how I find common ground is to try always to remember it's not for them, whoever them is, it's not to them. It's with them. And that when you're with someone and you both belong there, you will find common ground. Well said. Well said. Well, Laura, thank you for being a guest. Uh, we really appreciate it. You, you've added uh, you've added arts to the Common Ground show, which Lord thank knows you. we need it. Right, Odell? <laughs> yes, definitely. And again, Dina Hayes is fantastic. Um those who know Linda Jones and Nettie, you know, they were fantastic women. So it's just powerful. It's just powerful. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh, Laura, just thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll have you back again. There's there's plenty more to talk about in this city. And uh, we'll wait till you get your $5 million and you can tell us what you're going to be doing with it. Okay. Yeah, just $5 million. Just five. Bill, what's that percentage again? Because, you know, the good-looking black man who went to the school in South Carolina in the 60s, we didn't get the best education. But what what is $5 million on $180 million for this community to get better? Laura, just keep pushing. Good, keep pushing, girl. Keep pushing. Thank you. New episodes are posted every Friday. Please like, follow, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, Bill and Odell are online at commonground.show. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved.